This is Spacetime Series 25, Episode 40, for broadcast on the 4th of April, 2022. Coming up on Spacetime, the most distant star ever seen, discovery of a new inner Milky Way galactic ring, and a safe landing for Soyuz despite the growing war tensions. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Astronomers using NASA's Hubble Space Telescope have set a new record for the most distant star ever seen, a giant 50 times the mass of the Sun, located some 12.9 billion light-years away. The new discovery, named Randall, which means morning star in Old English, is millions of times brighter than the Sun and could rival the most massive stars known. It existed so long ago that it had a very different chemical composition compared to more recently formed stars like our Sun. Studying Randell will be a window into an era of the universe which astronomers are still unfamiliar with. At a distance of 12.9 billion light years, the universe was only 7% of its current age with a redshift of 6.2. Scientists use the term redshift because as the universe expands, light from distant objects are stretched or shifted to longer, hence redder wavelengths as it travels towards us. The new discovery, reported in the journal Nature, is a huge step further back in space-time compared to the previous single-star record holder, which was found in 2018, also by Hubble. Arendelle was identified thanks to a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing. A huge galaxy cluster, known as WHL 0137-08, just happened to pass in front of the star, as seen from Hubble's viewpoint. The huge gravity from this rare alignment bent and magnified the light coming from Arandel, allowing Hubble to see it. At this point, astronomers aren't able to tell too much. They don't know if Arandel's a binary system, though most stars do have at least one small companion star, our Sun being an exception to that rule. But they'll have plenty of time to study it. Arandel should remain highly magnified for several years to come, and so will become a primary target for the new James Webb Space Telescope once it starts operations. Webb will allow scientists to measure the star's brightness and temperature, details that will narrow down the type of star it is and the stage of stellar evolution it's at. Having formed so early in the history of the universe, Arendelle should turn out being a rare massive metal poor star. Its composition will be of great interest to astronomers because it formed before the universe was filled with all the heavy elements, which astronomers refer to as metals, which were produced by successive generations of massive stars. Now, if follow-up observations confirm that Arendelle is only made up of primordial hydrogen and helium, it'll provide the first evidence of a legendary group of stars known as Population 3 stars, which are hypothesized to be the very first stars to have formed after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Until these first stars formed in what's been termed the Epoch of Reionization, the universe was in the so-called Cosmic Dark Ages. But as clouds of primordial hydrogen and helium collapsed to make those first stars, the ultraviolet light they produced would reionize the universe, slowly removing its opacity and giving us the cosmos we see today. But the probability of Arendelle being a population 3 star is very slim. 
That's because it was formed around half a billion years after these first stars, which are thought to have only lived for a few million years, came into existence. Still, astronomers do find the prospect of seeing a Population 3 star for the first time extremely enticing. The discovery of Arendel was made from data collected during Hubble's RELICS Reionization Lensing Cluster Survey Program. The study's lead author, Brian Welch from Johns Hopkins University, says the star was so much further back in space-time than the previous record holder, it was hard to believe at first, and he figured it was more likely just a foreground brown dwarf. You see, normally at these distances, entire galaxies look like small smudges, with light from billions of stars all blending together. In fact, the galaxy hosting the star, which the authors have named Sunrise Arc, has been magnified and distorted by the gravitational lensing process into what looks like a long crescent shape, hence the name. This report from NASA TV. NASA's Hubble Space Telescope has established an extraordinary new benchmark, detecting the light of a star that existed within the first billion years after the universe's birth in the Big Bang, the farthest individual star ever seen to date. The newly detected star is 12.9 billion light years away, meaning that the light took 12.9 billion years to reach Earth. The previous record was 9 billion light years away. Normally, at these distances, entire galaxies look like small, dim smudges with the light from millions of stars blending together. But the galaxy hosting this star was magnified and distorted by gravitational lensing into a long crescent that astronomers named the Sunrise Arc. Gravitational lensing occurs when a tremendous mass warps the fabric of space, creating a powerful natural magnifying glass that distorts and greatly amplifies the light from distant objects behind it. The combined mass of a foreground group of galaxies created a lens that allowed astronomers to see this distant star. After studying the galaxy in detail, they determined that one feature is an extremely magnified star that they called Arendelle which means morning star in Old English. The research team estimates that Arendelle is at least 50 times the mass of our sun and millions of times as bright, rivaling the most massive stars known. Arendelle existed so long ago that it may not have had all the same raw materials as the stars around us today. Studying Arendelle will be a window into an era of the universe that we are unfamiliar with, but that led to everything we know today. This is Space Time. Still to come, discovery of a new inner Milky Way galactic ring, and a safe landing for Soyuz despite the growing war tensions. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Astronomers have discovered a new stellar inner ring structure near the centre of the Milky Way galaxy. The findings are reported in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics and on the pre-pressed physics website archive.org were made using a combination of existing observations and new computer modelling. The newly discovered structure is composed of metal-rich stars, which are much younger than those which make up the galactic bar structure of the Milky Way central bulge. Based on the ages of these stars in the new ring, astronomers have determined that those that make up the galactic bar structure must be at least 7 billion years old. The existence of this ring makes it likely that stellar formation from inflowing gas played an important role during the galaxy's early epoch. 
Understanding the global structure of our galaxy is complicated simply by the fact that we're situated close to one of the spiral arms in the plane of the galactic disk. It's all a bit like not being able to see the forest because of the trees. In many directions, stars are obscured by dense clouds of gas and dust. And this is especially true towards the centre of the Milky Way, making the inner Milky Way structure especially difficult to determine. Nevertheless, over the past decade, scientists have been able to combine data from numerous observational campaigns together with sophisticated computer simulations to create a state-of-the-art model of the inner Milky Way showing its bar-like structure, which is apparently shaped a bit like a peanut. And recent surveys such as Apogee have helped produce a wealth of new data about the inner Milky Way region. Apogee's a large-scale stellar spectroscopic survey conducted at near-infrared wavelengths. Unlike optical light, which is unable to penetrate the clouds of gas and dust, infrared light can more easily pierce through this shroud, allowing Apogee to detect stars situated in the dusty regions of the Milky Way, such as the disk and galactic bulge and thereby determine not only their elemental abundances, but also their positions, line-of-sight velocities, and approximate ages. Meanwhile, the new data released from the European Space Agency's Gaia mission is charting over a billion stars in the Milky Way, providing additional positional and proper motion measurements. And together, these surveys are providing observational ingredients to help astronomers determine the exact orbits of stars in the inner regions of the Milky Way. The study's lead author, Shola Wiley from the Max Planck Institute, says all that was really needed then was a realistic Milky Way potential to integrate the stars into. And luckily, that could be obtained from the inner Milky Way model created by the Max Planck Institute. This allowed the authors to integrate over 30,000 stars from the Apogee survey, together with additional data from Gaia, into the Milky Way bar bulge potential to obtain the full orbit of these stars. Wiley says these orbits allowed her team to effectively see behind the galactic bulge as well as other spatial regions not covered by the surveys. They then used these orbits to build up maps of stellar density, metallicity and age for the inner Milky Way. In the process, they discovered an interstellar ring structure around the central galactic bar. This ring structure contained stars that were more metal-rich and therefore younger than stars in the bar itself. Astronomers refer to all elements in the universe other than hydrogen and helium, which were first formed in the Big Bang 13.82 billion years ago, as metals. These metals are produced by stars both during their lifetimes and when they eventually die. They then spread out across the universe, where they end up in the composition of new generations of stars. And as more and more stars are born, more and more heavy elements are formed. And so, over the age of the universe, the amount of metals, that is its metallicity, increases. For astronomers, what that means is that the higher the metallicity of a star, the more recently it was formed. Wiley and colleagues found the stars in the newly discovered ring structure to be around 7 billion years old, far younger than those in the central galactic bar. While stars forming inner rings have been seen in other spiral galaxies, it wasn't known if the Milky Way also contained such a structure, at least until now. To separate the stars in the ring from those in the bar structure, the authors used the eccentricity of the stellar orbits, how much they deviated from a circle. They found not only that the stars in the ring structure were younger and more metal-rich than stars in the bar, but that these stars were more concentrated towards the galactic plane. The authors think the stars in the stellar ring must have continued to form from inflowing gas after the bar was already in place. 
Therefore, the age of the stars in the inner ring can be used to look back to the formation history of the Milky Way and estimate that the galactic bar must have been at least 7 billion years old. It's still unclear if there's a connection between the newly discovered inner ring and the galaxy's spiral arms, and whether gas is currently still being funneled inwards towards this inner ring structure, as is seen in other spiral galaxies. So, further work will be needed to better understand the transition from the ring structure to the surrounding disk of the Milky Way, requiring augmented models and further data. This is Space Time. Still to come... A safe landing for Soyuz despite growing war tensions. And later in the science report, the iconic duck-billed platypus now listed as extinct in Sydney's Royal National Park. All that and more still to come on Space Time. After extending the record for the longest single American spaceflight in history to 355 days, NASA astronaut Mark van der Hey has returned safely to Earth aboard the Soyuz MS-19 spacecraft together with two Russian cosmonauts. Van der Hey surpassed NASA's previous record for the longest single spaceflight by 15 days. The trio landed on the frozen Kazakhstan steppe four hours and six minutes after undocking from the International Space Station. Out of the plasma regime, uh, Anton Shkaplerov reporting that the crew is feeling great. We are about a minute away from the expected uh, command to open the parachutes. A Soyuz MS-19 under the orange and white parachute, less than eight minutes before touchdown. There's one of the Russian Mi-8 helicopters as we stand by for touchdown. Touchdown. Touchdown confirmed at 6.28 a.m. Central Time, 7.28 a.m. Eastern Time, 5.28 p.m. at the landing site. Mark Vandehei and Pyotr Dubrov back home one year after leaving the planet. Anton Shkaplerov, the Soyuz commander out of the spacecraft, having completed his fourth flight into space and to the International Space Station, 708 days in space for Shkaplerov, seventh on the all-time endurance list. And Pyotr Dubrov... Outside of uh, the uh, Soyuz capsule, 355 days in space. He and Mark Vandehei having launched together last April 9th. And NASA astronaut Mark Vandehei now out of the Soyuz spacecraft. The ride home aboard the Russian spacecraft came despite the escalating tensions between Washington and Moscow over Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which has seen the slaughter of thousands of unarmed civilians by Russian forces. War tensions have bubbled over into other areas of spaceflight, with the suspension of European satellite launches on Russian rockets, jointly operated space telescopes being switched off by the Russians, Russian rocket engine cells to the United States being suspended, and the already long-delayed joint European-Russian ExoMars mission to the Red Planet cancelled and stuck on Earth for at least another two years. Russia had also threatened to stop cooperation aboard the International Space Station. But cooperation between Russian and Western crews has continued smoothly, with the Ukraine being kept out of conversation. Van der Hey's extended mission aboard the space station allows researchers an opportunity to observe the effects of long-duration spaceflight on humans as the agency prepares to return to the moon's surface under the Artemis program and prepare for manned missions to Mars. 
Van der Heer completed some 5,680 orbits of the Earth, roughly equivalent to 312 trips to the Moon and back. He witnessed the arrival of 15 spacecraft and new modules, and the departure of 14 visiting spacecraft. With the undocking of the Soyuz MS-19 from the International Space Station, Expedition 67 has officially begun. Remaining on board are three Americans and a German who arrived aboard their Dragon spacecraft in November and three Russians who arrived two weeks ago aboard their Soyuz capsule. Next week, the seven will be joined by three SpaceX space tourists together with an ex-astronaut escort for a week-long visit arranged by private company Axion Space. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. And we start with some sad news. One of Australia's most iconic animals, the duckbill platypus, is now listed as extinct in Sydney's Royal National Park. None have been seen in the park for decades, and scientists with the University of New South Wales made the call based on a lack of recent environmental DNA. The environmental DNA surveys, which use DNA found in water samples to paint a picture of the different animals living in a local environment, found traces of 250 land and water species in the parks Hacking River and Kangaroo Creek, but none of these samples showed any signs of local platypus life. National Park Rangers and scientists will try to reverse that situation later this year with the reintroduction of 10 platypus to local river systems in August. In addition to confirming that platypus no longer live in the park, the team evaluated the quality of local rivers, surveyed potential platypus food resources, and ensured that potential threats such as sedimentation, pollution and foxes wouldn't threaten any new platypus populations. Platypus are one of Australia's most iconic mammals. But sadly, they're currently listed as a near-threatened species, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List. A landmark assessment by the University of New South Wales in 2020 found that the area of eastern Australia where platypus live has shrunk by up to 22% over the past 30 years, with key threats to their habitat being historic land clearing, river regulation and extreme drought. A new study claims consuming two to three cups of coffee a day is not only associated with a lower risk of heart disease and dangerous heart rhythms, but also with living longer. The findings, reported to the American College of Cardiology's 71st Annual Scientific Session, comes from the largest analysis of coffee's potential role in heart disease and death ever undertaken. The data originated in the UK Biobank, which contains health information on more than half a million people who were followed up for at least 10 years. The researchers looked at varying levels of caffeine consumption, ranging from one to more than six cups a day and they compared that relationship with heart rhythm problems, cardiovascular disease, including coronary artery disease, heart failure and stroke, and total and heart-related deaths among people both with and without cardiovascular disease. Overall, they either found no effect, or in many cases, significant reductions in cardiovascular risk. After controlling for exercise, alcohol, smoking, diabetes and high blood pressure, which could all play a role in heart health and longevity, researchers found either no effect or in many cases a significant reduction in cardiovascular risk. 
In one study, researchers examined data from 382,535 individuals without any known heart disease in order to see whether coffee drinking played a role in the development of heart disease or stroke during the 10 years of follow-up studies. They found the risk of stroke or heart-related death was lowest among people who drank one cup of coffee a day. Researchers did observe a U-shaped relationship between coffee intake and new heart-related rhythmic problems. But the maximum benefit was seen among people drinking two to three cups of coffee a day, with less benefit seen amongst those drinking either more or less than that. Another study looked at 34,279 people who did have some form of cardiovascular disease at baseline. They found that coffee intake of two to three cups a day was associated with lower odds of dying compared to having no coffee. Importantly, consuming any amount of coffee was not associated with a higher risk of heart rhythm problems, including atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. In a third study, researchers looked at whether there was any difference in the relationship between coffee consumption and cardiovascular disease depending on whether someone drank instant coffee or ground coffee, caffeinated or decaf. They found once again that two to three cups a day was associated with the lowest risk of arrhythmia, blockages in heart arteries, stroke or heart failure, regardless of whether they had ground or instant coffee. Lower rates of death were seen across all coffee types, with decaf being only slightly less favourable in some cases. Archaeologists have uncovered what is now the oldest known Hebrew text in Israel, which includes the name of God. The research by scientists with Haifa University and the Academy of Sciences of the Czech Republic in Prague have dated the tiny tablet, which was found at a dig site at Mount Ebal, to the late Bronze Age, some 3,200 years ago. Scientists say that if the age of the tiny 2cm by 2cm folded lead tablet is confirmed, it will be the first attested use of the name of God in the land of Israel and would set the clock back on proven Israelite literacy by several centuries, showing that Israelites were literate when they returned to the Holy Land from Egypt and therefore could have written the events described in the Bible's Old Testament. The first mention of the ancient land called Israel was made by the Egyptian pharaoh Memphtah some 3,429 years ago. There was a time when Amazon used to sell books online. Nowadays, they sell just about everything online. And so Australian skeptics have taken a look at some of the most outlandish pseudoscience and just plain weird stuff now available on Amazon. Among a blizzard of homeopathy, snake oil and reflexology stuff, there are magnetic products designed to improve your blood flow, DYI ear acupuncture kits, and more dangerously, supposed cancer cures. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says it seems to be a clear case of buyer beware and a fool and his money soon parted. When Amazon stopped just, it broadened their range out beyond books and CDs and went into products, etc. That's when they got started getting some weird and wonderful things there. And really their filtering, if you like, of the useful, interesting and, and junk is pretty weak by and large. But they've been selling sort of weird products, supposedly medical products, homeopathy, homeopathy products and things. They sell reflexology sandals, so you're walking on sort of bumpy surface under your sole, not under the shoe, but actually 
pointing up and uh, stimulating your soul in a rather unpleasant way. I remember seeing those donkeys years ago, actually, when you used to walk around in them and you could only wear them for about two minutes before they really hurt. Various cancer cures, which is, of course, illegal. One of my favourites is DIY ear acupuncture. All right. Which basically, no, no. <laughs> DIY ear acupuncture uses, doesn't use needles, thank heaven. Especially DIY, you don't want to be sticking needles when you're staring in a mirror and trying to say, "Where do I stick this?" It's a little ear, like a like a phrenology skull, where you get all the bumps and show where the good bits are, right? Not the skull. <laughs> this is a, an ear which shows all the points, presumably meridians, as they use in acupuncture, to put seeds on. So it's not needles. You get a, you get a bit of sticky tape, you put it over a, whether whether it's a caraway seed. I'm not quite sure what sort of seed it is, and then you put it on the ear in a particular place. And some of these are pretty precise. It'd be hard to sort you of should get make very them coconuts. Re- that way, they're all. You know. <laughs> well, bang a coconut on your ear, right? And you you're guaranteed to have an impact, right? <laughs> Putting little seeds, caraway seeds. I mean, literally, they have to be tiny seeds, poppy seeds, that sort of thing, to actually fit in the spots that they highlight. And of course, one of the best products they sell is actual snake oil, real live snake oil. Although it's not real and it's not live, but it's, they sell snake oil and we sort of figure that someone might be having a little joke with that one which comments on all the homeopathy and reflexology and acupuncture stuff that they put on there but if they're selling cancer cures that goes beyond just being silly of course so that, that gets into serious areas of medical products and claiming you can cure cancer in an advertisement is actually illegal in Australia I'm not quite sure what it is elsewhere you could hope that some of it would, would just be jokes you would hope I mean obviously yes. it's snake oil but the DIY ear acupuncture might be a cute thing to stick on your mantelpiece or something you know so that looks looks interesting with all these little dots and things painted on it. Um, reflexology sandals and stuff is stuff you wear for five minutes and then you throw it away because it is incredibly painful to walk on these things. And even if they're all even, like, you know, even sort of the nodules are the same height, it's still very uncomfortable to walk on. Homeopathic products, as we know, don't work. There are magnetic products which don't work, all sorts of things. But you can buy a whole range of junk on Amazon in amongst the books and the CDs and stuff like that. You can get some really, really weird things that I would warn people against taking them too seriously or even using them in some cases. That's Tim Mendham from Australia. Australian skeptics. And that's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from Spacetime with StuartGarry.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. 
And Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 